Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe. It's been another dizzying week in Europe. While it might be the continent's month of long weekends, two already done and one more to come on Monday, May 21, the politics just don't stop. Italy is hurtling towards a double-barreled populist government. And Donald Tusk's statement this week that Europe's had enough of the Trump administration toying and messing with it could mark a turning point in how the continent handles its American allies. Tusk, of course, said what a lot of national leaders and EU officials think but haven't dared to say. But don't forget the kicker in his claim. Yes, he said that with friends like Trump, who needs enemies, but he also said that Europe needs to fend for itself. And that's going to be a difficult ask, because Tusk has already fired the only weapon he has, words. In this week's episode, we tackle two topical issues in the feature interviews. The first is anti-Semitism, which is a growing problem in Europe. We talk to the EU's coordinator for combating anti-Semitism, Katerina von Schnorbein. We do so in a week when Israel is celebrating turning 70, a week when Israel's Netta won the Eurovision Song Contest, and a week when Israeli forces killed around 60 protesters in Gaza. In our second interview, I speak with Martina Larkin, who's heading up a World Economic Forum initiative to support the Western Balkans countries to reach their potential. That's a region still scarred by the legacy of its communist past and the wars of the 1990s, one full of opportunity, but also one that's fragile. The EU understands that. It's now talking about more of a timeline for EU membership for those countries. And it's also why Bulgaria now and Austria from July are making the region a focus of their EU presidencies we discuss what else beyond EU membership the region needs. Now it's time to hear from Katarina von Schnorbein. Joining us now on the podcast is Katarina von Schnorbein, who is the European Commission Coordinator on Combating Anti-Semitism. And you've been doing this job since late 2015. Welcome, Katarina. Pleased to be here. One thing that I've been unsure of is whether the very clear rise in anti-Semitism is a kind of dormant attitude that is now finding new platforms to express itself. Maybe it's been given permission by newly successful political leaders and now others follow and give voice to those views. Or is it really new converts, people who didn't think about these issues before and now they're looking for a scapegoat and they're finding them in Jewish communities? 
I think you have both. Indeed, you have a, a situation where to some extent the floodgates are open and anti-Semitism is expressed more openly. Conspiracy theories are found in the middle of society, teachers who have lost the compass as to what is anti-Semitism and therefore do not react properly in school when Jewish students are being harassed, judges who think that throwing Molotov cocktails into a synagogue is a legitimate expression of a political opinion. These kind of challenges that we see in the middle of society, I think, are growing because of a lot of compass. But you also have an imported form of anti-Semitism coming from migrants who come from a society where anti-Semitism, a Jew hatred, hatred of Israel is just simply part of the narrative. And I think we have to be very careful in not to stigmatize the whole community, but we also have to uh, be very alert to addressing the issue. And sometimes it can be hard to know where to start. This idea that when something is pervasive, you, you don't know whether to start with the small issues, the big issues, to have a zero tolerance policy. The question that people might have in their everyday lives is how do I recognize the signs of anti-Semitism and then how can I start to take action? Have you got as far as to come up with advice on that front or you have your own personal ideas perhaps on what anyone listening might be able to do? Well, one prerequisite, and this is also why my post exists since December 2015, is that there must be on the political side a clear determination. And we see that with First Vice President Timmermans and Commissioner Jodova very much involved in advancing policies against anti-Semitism. And this, of course, is the prerequisite for us to be able to, to act. This is this one aspect. And we have, uh, for example created a code of conduct and combat on combating illegal hate speech online, which includes also anti-Semitic illegal hate speech with the IT companies, uh, the big ones, Twitter, uh, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and now also Instagram, to ensure that they, within 24 hours, revise and, if necessarily, remove illegal hate speech. This is one aspect that was tackled. Also, we've created with the member states a group, high-level uh, member states expert group on racism and xenophobia, to ensure that existing legislation is properly put into place with regards to tackling hate crime and hate speech, uh, ensuring that hate crime is better recorded. Because one of the issues we have is that the data on anti-Semitic incidents is very poor and not comparable across Europe. And I think when you look at the need for recognition that this is a real issue and not just for the Jews, but for society at large, because we see in history that whenever anti-Semitism has been on the rise, something bigger has been going on. It is a, a sign that something's going wrong in society. And therefore, it needs to be tackled also by society at large and not a primary responsibility for the Jews. And so in order to increase this recognition, I think we need better data and we also need a definition of what anti-Semitism is. And that is something that we have worked on as well. This definition, which was adopted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance in 2016, has been used by the European Commission and has been adopted by the European Parliament with a recommendation by EU member states to adopt it and use it as a non-legally binding tool in the training of law enforcers, of teachers, 
of the general public to know what anti-Semitism is about, so that you can tackle left-wing anti-Semitism, as we see in some countries increasingly, also coming from within the Muslim community, the old racist anti-Semitism, the conspiracy theories, all of this is covered, including also the red line as to criticism of Israel. Speaking of measuring incidents, one article I was reading this week was around the documentation of harassment of people at the Auschwitz Museum. So there's obviously been a controversial new law in Poland regarding the ways that you can refer to the Holocaust and Poland's victimization and role in that whole process. I want to be careful in the words I use here too. But to me, that was quite shocking, where they detailed more than 50 incidents over the last few months, I think, like really direct harassment of people giving tours of the museum and so on. Is that the sort of practical example that has been coming to your doorstep more and more recently? Yes, this is indeed very worrying and we see it not only there but in with regards to a lot of Jewish institutions. It is not for nothing that in most EU countries it is necessary to have security in front of Jewish institutions. And I think, as I said, uh, to some extent, there also the floodgates have been opened. Huh? And fighting anti-Semitism in the end is a question of civil courage. It's not easy to fight it in your own environment, but this is where it starts. So to f start in your own party, your own parents' association, your own sports club, your own neighborhood if necessary, to react when you hear something at a dinner party. It's that kind of civil courage that we need and that will in the end change the situation. But in order to get there, I think we have to increase the recognition of general society that it is an issue not only for the Jews but for them. I mean, of course we have the neo-Nazis still a threat. And we have, in particular, coming from within the Muslim community, extremists who have been behind the terror attacks. This is something that we absolutely need to tackle. But with regards to the everyday situation of Jews, um, these conspiracy theories, the ideas of a Jewish lobby, the, um, the ideas of Jews controlling uh, the banks and the media. The Soros plan, for example. Yeah, uh, these kind of things, they are a challenge. Um, we know from surveys that prejudices against Jews within the Muslim community are two to three times higher. But we also see, and this was very encouraging, that there is a willingness, especially among young people, to tackle these issues. And we need to strengthen the back of those who are doing this very difficult work, have been doing it for some time as NGOs. Some of them are now getting support from member states, for example, to do this work in schools, in youth centers and so on. So it is, I think we see there also that there is a willingness to address the issue. Of course, It's important, and I think this is always the sensitive issue, not to stigmatize the whole community and yet not to deny the problem. Because if we deny the problem, we will never get over it. The German president said recently, if you want to become German, or let's say uh, see Germany as your home, you cannot say, this is your history, not mine. And I think the understanding of what the Shoah, the Holocaust, meant for Europe, meant also for the creation of the European Union, is something essential with regards to the integration process. And that is something that we have also discussed here in how far 
This should be a benchmark, acceptance of Jewish life in Europe. We will conduct for three months a survey with the Fundamental Rights Agency on the perception and experiences of the Jewish community across Europe. It will be a representative study that will tackle 95% of European Jewry with regard to their perception of has anti-Semitism increased? Are you sitting on packed suitcases? Do you usually go to the police? What is your perception of the perpetrators? All these kind of things, because we think that we need to know more in order to then create even more targeted policies. And again, as I said, there is a high political will from the side of the Commission to really tackle the issue. Another very current example is inside or around the UK Labour Party. And I've got sort of two, I hope not contradictory views on that front, which is that it seems there's a lot of evidence that there is a problem, but also it's something we see quite often in Britain, is that the problem gets addressed more visibly and it gets measured more visibly than maybe in some other European countries. So at the surface level, it looks like, oh, this is terrible. Isn't Britain in a bad situation? And yet it's tackling the problem that it has identified more readily than other European countries might. I would agree with the fact that there is certainly an issue with regards to measuring, for example, also anti-Semitic incidents in a proper way. And the UK, France, uh, Germany and some other countries have been doing that. And when you do it, it means anti-Semitic incidents increase because you measure them properly. So, for example, in Germany and France now we have four incidents per day in the UK as well, which is a lot given that the Jewish community as such is less than 1% in all of these countries. But when you measure it properly and also with regards to the Labour Party, if you address it, then, of course, you can also uh, change things. I think that there is an issue with anti-Semitism hiding behind anti-Zionism. We have seen it for some time and it's very important. And for this, this definition that the European Parliament adopted and that has been adopted by the UK government and, for example, also by several uh, universities across the UK, as a guidance tool, what anti-Semitism and in which forms it can play out today is very helpful. And I think it's also a basis to address these issues within the Labour Party. As I said, the most difficult issue is to address it in your own environment. And the fact that they are doing it is a good step forward. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the more difficult questions is around that dividing line between someone who may have criticism of the Israeli state and its actions under international law versus someone who makes a general or prejudiced target of an entire community. Is the dividing line really about the specific versus the general or is there, there somewhere else where it starts to cross over into anti-Semitism? Criticism of Israel like that level towards other countries cannot be considered as anti-Semitic. So criticism of policies as such is not necessarily anti-Semitic, but when it is about the existence of the State of Israel and the question of self-determination for the Jewish people, then that becomes uh, anti-Semitic. One factor that maybe is very interesting to people beyond the Jewish community is that sometimes anti-Semitic attacks start focused on that community, but then spread to be a threat to wider society at large. Is that your reading of what's happened over the last few years in Europe? It's been said many times, it starts with the Jews, but it doesn't stop there. 
And I think we can see that, for example, with regards to the terrorist attacks. And we had terrorist attacks on the rabbi and three children of the Jewish school in Toulouse in 2012. We had the attack on the Brussels Jewish Museum in 2013. And then we had an attack on Charlie Hebdo on our common values and our open society in 2015, followed by several other attacks also on Jewish institutions such as Hebrew uh, Kasher and also the synagogue in Copenhagen. So... I think there is this aspect of a correlation between attacking Jews and having that as a seismograph for a societal development that can be uh, caught. And it's important to be aware of that and also to therefore understand, you know, when Jews are threatened, it may end in the fact that society at large will be threatened. Now, another interesting aspect of anti-Semitism is that It can overlap with racism, but it's not really just about racism and inferiority complexes, is it? Yes, indeed, there are differences and similarities between anti-Semitism and racism. So while racism is usually directed at a group that one sees inferior, where one looks down upon, with regards to anti-Semitism, you do have that aspect, that racist aspect that was expressed in its most extreme forms in the racial laws. But you also have the ideas of a superiority aspect where Jews control the world, where they pull the strings, where they have these conspiracy theories. And that correlation is often misunderstood. And therefore, also the way we have to fight anti-Semitism is then misunderstood. It's very important to keep these two aspects in mind. Now, the EU often is outward-looking. It makes rules for society at large. But like any large institution, I can imagine there are some issues internally as well. What sort of self-reflection have you gone through or you've encouraged institutions like the Commission, the Parliament, the Council to go through over anti-Semitism? Well, we have started to have trainings on what anti-Semitism is like today, what forms it can take today, also based on that definition on anti-Semitism, in order to create that debate also internally. We have also once a year for Holocaust Remembrance Day uh, a training on the role of civil servants at the time in bringing about the Holocaust. And there is usually then a link to the current situation with regards to the refugees, for example. We try to build that bridge and then also to look into Jewish life today. So, for example, recently we had a training on a survey that was conducted by the Jewish Policy Research Center in London on Jewish identity in Europe versus the US or Israel. And that was also uh, interesting to see parallels, but also to see differences. And so I think it is important to show all these different aspects also to colleagues in the EU institutions. Katharina von Schnobein, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. You were listening to Katharina von Schnorbein, the EU coordinator for combating anti-Semitism. Next up is Martina Larkin from the World Economic Forum. Well, one of the big topics this week is an EU summit on the Balkans, this week in Sofia. But there's also a new form of diplomacy that will be complementing the traditional EU summit. It's organised by the World Economic Forum and they're billing it as a strategic dialogue. 
And joining me now on the podcast is Martina Larkin. She's Head of Regional Strategies for Europe and Eurasia at the World Economic Forum. Martina, welcome. Thank you. Now, you might have guessed that I'm hoping you can tell us a bit more about why the forum thinks this sort of discussion is necessary and useful. So tell us, how is this different from the sort of fringe and parallel events that we see at lots of leaders' summits and gathering of the great and good? Thanks, Ryan. So I would say, uh, you know, more broadly speaking, the forum has increased its work on the geopolitical agenda. So it's part of a broader global effort that the forum is launching to really enhance the dialogue on geopolitical issues globally. Now, this particular effort is not just a fringe event at one of the summits, but really an ongoing effort of the forum to you know, put a bit of a spotlight on this particular region, but also to facilitate and enable a dialogue and hopefully progress to be made in the region and for the region. And so this is part of a series of dialogues that we're hosting. We hosted one in Davos as an initial discussion, and this is our second edition, so to speak. And we will continue this conversation through the Austrian presidency of the EU, but then also with Romania. And of course, in Davos 2019, this is hopefully also going to be a big topic. And hopefully we'll have something to say about some of the progress that has been made through these dialogue series and the work that has been done in the region throughout these months. And is part of the essence of this dialogue that leadership today is about more than government leadership, that you really need people from across sectors, and specifically you need private sector initiatives and energy if you really want to get a society to change and an economy to grow? Yes, absolutely. We strongly believe in this cooperation between the public and private sector. And even in Davos, we already brought in some business leaders to the conversation with the political leadership. And this time around, we also made a strong effort to bring in the presence and the the participation of the business leaders in the region, but also internationally, those who are interested in investing and helping in, in the region. And thirdly, also a big effort for us is to bring in the next generation leadership. So We are bringing in shapers, our community of of youth below 30 years old, but also young global leaders and new leaders for Europe, all communities that are driven through their youth angle to the conversation because we believe that the next generation needs to have a seat at the table and we want to be helping to facilitate that. I'm really glad you brought them into the conversation. I recall from Davos this year, where I was joining you and some others at a a dinner on Europe, that Eddie Rama, the Prime Minister of Albania, he was very impressive when you watch him in action. He's not just charismatic, but a real thinker and doer. Are there other people like him from that younger generation or, or even Mr. Rama's generation where the people listening should be paying attention to their names and their initiatives? Yeah, so, you know, another person I think that is extremely energetic and somebody that is really a role model also in the region is the Prime Minister of Serbia, Anna Bernabec. She's a woman and has been really showing leadership and incredible energy to drive also a digital agenda, so they have a really future-oriented agenda for Serbia and for the region. She has really engaged with us on topics on the future of Europe. As you mentioned at dinner, she was part of that as well, particularly the discussion around migration. And of course, the Balkans role in migration has been a significant also one also. And she has significant experience in that topic. And the digital agenda is also something that she has taken on big leadership. But there's a number of other leaders in the region on the ministerial level that have 
been part of our conversations in our community and uh, we have involved them in our conversation. We'll involve them now this week also in Sofia and we strongly believe that they can play a significant role to sort of connect the dots between those interactions and those meetings and really go back to their countries and their region and advance some of the discussions that we have at those touch points that we facilitate. And how much of this is about ensuring there's enough self-sufficiency and self-organization for these countries to make some real progress before they might eventually join the EU? And and the reason I ask that is the EU has certainly not closed the door to membership, but they haven't been moving very quickly. And there's essentially a big gap between being in a sort of post-war recovery phase and eventually getting in the door at the EU. And the countries of the region have to do something to succeed and and to grow. And and I'm getting the sense that you're helping to fill that gap. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, the purpose here is really to provide stability and growth for the region. And Whether that then ends up in accession to the EU or not, I think is sort of a second conversation. Our primary goal is to really help stabilize and grow the region, which still has, as you mentioned, has lots of room to grow. There's significant problems. Their growth is not as sort of good as it was a couple of years ago. It's quite fragile. You have high unemployment rate. There's still corruption in the region. So it's not as rosy as it looks. And recent uh, research has also shown that it would take the Western Balkan states 60 years to close the income and living standards gap with the EU. So uh, we're not quite there yet, I think, uh, in terms of the EU accession, although, of course, uh, President Juncker and others have said that 2025 is a goal, at least for Serbia and perhaps some other states to advance their accession talks and perhaps be part of it. But For us, our primary goal is really to stabilize and grow the region because it has a broader role also vis-a-vis Europe and Turkey and, of course, the link to Eurasia and beyond that, which we think is extremely strategic going forward. And you mentioned that point of fragility and one of the points of fragility being, for example, the presence of organized crime in the region. What are some of the other ones? Is it that you have big neighbors or big players like Russia who would like to exert influence? Or is it the fact that the Western Balkans is a migration route and that that can put a lot of pressure on those countries? Or or is it a set of other factors that I'm overlooking? Well, I think there is a number of factors that contribute to the fragility. One is perhaps more economic and just also the simple fact that these are relatively small and underdeveloped domestic markets and that, you know, within states alone, it's very difficult to achieve major market access. But really, it's about the unity and sort of the regional cooperation that's important here. And there's interesting conversation about an economic era in the region that could be developed, etc. So there's a number of factors related to this. And then, of course, there is also quite high levels of unemployment, particularly in some countries, which is extremely concerning. There's a big brain drain in the region. So while you have migration and migrants coming to those countries, they don't typically tend to stay in the region, but sort of move on to other countries where they think there's bigger chances of success. And you have still relatively large and growing public debt in the region, which is also you know, contributing to the fragility. And then the institutions, you know, as, as these countries are relatively young, um, are perhaps not as mature as in other countries. And so you have also a factor there that contributes to the fragility in the region. But I would say also the factor that 
you don't have the next generation or sort of the promising youth staying on is a major issue in terms of demographic challenges for the region also. That's a bread and butter issue for the World Economic Forum there, where a lot of these countries need to undertake some very tough structural economic reforms if they want to retain more of their talented young people. And we've seen this in the past in countries like some of the Baltic countries, where they lose a lot of their best people to other parts of the EU, where that role of the EU being a magnet can actually sometimes be a disadvantage if you're a smaller player on its fringes. Yeah, I think the the structural changes are certainly some, or reforms are certainly something that needs to be prioritised and implemented, and these countries need to work very hard on those. And of course, these are also part of some of the you know plans for the accession to the EU. But there's also more future oriented, I guess, aspects of this, like the digital agenda, digital skills, technical skills. Like Estonia has really revolutionised its society and its its economy through being much more future-oriented. And I think particularly smaller countries have a chance to be much more agile and much more adapted to future-oriented topics and trying to transform their economies in sort of a leapfrogging way or whatever you want to call it, but really try to look to the future and prepare in a very different way than perhaps what bigger countries do not manage to do given the huge scope and scale of operations that will be necessary. That's a really interesting point to end on, actually, that whole idea of being future-oriented. Because we see in so many post-conflict societies that they're really able to succeed when they've been able to deal with their past while also looking to their future. Do you think that there's been enough reconciling and dealing with that past to really be able to dive into those future-oriented questions? Or is that still a challenge where you see that come up again and again when you try and pivot towards those future-oriented discussions? Yeah, so look, I think you cannot forget the past. And of course, there needs to be some sort of reconciliation and these societies need time to heal and sort of also have friendly relationships with its neighbours as it has been highlighted also as one of the priorities for them. But clearly, you know, given our initial conversations in Davos this year, there is a strong willingness from all the Western Balkan countries to work together and we've got them all together again in Sofia and they're really willing to overcome their past, to work together, to look to the future, to be really transforming and transformative when it comes to their future economies and societies. So I think our role can be to provide a platform for them to play that role and help them to accelerate that transformation and perhaps also move it in the right direction. Well, I can only wish you luck. We have a section in the podcast called EU Thumbs Up, and I'm going to nominate what you're doing as a thumbs up for this week, because I think the region and the wider world definitely needs that stability and that progress. So thank you for joining us on the podcast, Martina. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. You were listening to Martina Larkin from the World Economic Forum. And now it's time to bring in the Brussels Brains Trust. Welcome back, Lena Abarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alba. And, yeah, welcome, Alba. Oh, welcome back, Lena. So glad to have you again. Yeah, so Lena's our shiny new toy. Alva, you're just like this yeah. thing that comes in every week. Oh, yes. really? No, I, I'm very happy to be back, really. I missed you guys, and I can't wait to... We know, because thing, we're right? sitting here drinking champagne. Sorry if that sounds elite or dramatic. Sorry, Carver. Let's, mm-hmm. let's be specific. We're yeah. drinking Carver, so it's a very relaxed podcast panel this week. But it means we're all in a good mood. So why don't we begin with an EU thumbs up? How about that? Perfect. Let's well, multiple EU thumbs up. 
I'm going to nominate the first ever EU People of African Descent Week. So honoring Europe's populations of color, Europe's black populations. You can use a number of different labels here, but the point is to highlight people who are often made to feel invisible in Europe. Any reactions to those events down at the European Parliament? Yeah, can you just describe what they were? Well, I'm glad you asked, Alba. There was a range of activities. They centered around the European Parliament, and they really ranged from things like celebrating the contributions that people of African descent have made to European life to discussions around how can rights be recognized, how can rights be enforced, also a lot of other forums and discussions. There was a bit of socializing. I saw several receptions on the program there. So I would call it a, a fairly typical program of people talking about serious issues, but also uh, elevating the idea in public discussion and doing it at what really should be the marketplace, the meeting point, the town hall of Europe, which is its European Parliament. Well, in response to that, I think it's always good to have these days, although I think sometimes we almost have too many of them. There's a day for everything. There's a UN day for, you know, peacekeeping, a UN day for mental health, a UN day for whatever. But there isn't always these European days. And I think it is really important that, you know, given Europe's history, particularly the colonial past, it's really important for people of African descent here to feel recognised. And I'm very glad that this is a, an initiative that they're taking forward. However, the one thing I will say is that sometimes these days can turn into tokenism. And they shouldn't just be the only time when these people to get to voice their experiences and then also input into European policy making. I hope it's not only one day. I hope we implement this and do this on on daily basis and it becomes like sort of an, an embedded principles and values. Okay, now where are the thumbs up from you two? I think we need to get some more thumbs up into this discussion. I would start. Uh, I just have been in Latin America and in particular um, in El Salvador and uh, I would like to really say Europe is outside of the EU bubble and out of the, the Brussels uh, bubble. We, we're always skeptical and we're always pessimists sometimes about the, the European project but Europe is really changing the lives of so many. I had the chance to visit so many of the projects. What was your favorite? You sort of saw things on the front line. What was really making a difference? Last week, they, for instance, they gave the Medaille d'Europe, the Medallion of Europe, to a Salvadorian lady who incorporated women that have been at risk and violated through art and dance, and they have become ballerinas. I have, for instance, met another young gentleman who is trying to incorporate children through... Um, graffiti. Uh, graffiti, exactly. And he's encouraging everyone to do it. I mean, mind you, these countries are uh, the children and the adolescents. They can go through organized crime or they can go and become drug dealers. And the EU is really contributing to that. Uh, I was very proud. Well, contributing and very against it. Against it, exactly, in, uh, through projects. We don't want drug dealers paid for by the EU. Of course, Ryan. <laughs> um, but but it, it was really touchy to see EU in action. I was very happy. And um, EU needs Europe a little bit of more thumbs up on that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, at the moment, I work for an NGO that focuses on children and children's rights. And I focus very much on development and how the EU spends its aid money so Lena is absolutely correct that the EU invests millions 
sometimes billions into furthering not just the lives and the rights of children but also women people who are in marginalized situations so that they aren't left behind and I know that we can't see that here but it is important to remember the role that the EU plays you know globally yeah Yeah, we're global Europe and we see that now as well with the EU's budget proposal more money but we want to see yeah where is that going to go absolutely I think EU citizens want to know these kind of things that the European Union is investing in health projects social protection for marginalised children, marginalised women. And there's also a Europe Day and a Europe Month Month. where this is celebrated around the world. You got to see that in action, Lena. Like here, people laugh at the idea of Schumann Day, like it's just some public holiday for Eurocrats. But what did it feel like in Salvador? Uh, It it, it felt, I was really overwhelmed. Um, Sometimes I was thinking like how much the Europeans need to be outside of Europe to see their values in action. And another thing that really I hope the upcoming elections in so many European countries that they really don't underestimate some of the political parties, some of the rising politicians, they underestimate the importance of development assistance for third countries. This is one of the major things that makes and distinguish Europe from other donors and from other continents. I do really hope that they continue, that they see the value of it. I know many countries in Europe that they have uh, unemployment, a huge big unemployment rate, and why would they care to give millions or provide jobs to people in other parts of the world? But this is what makes Europe different, and this is what makes Europe a real player on the international arena. Now, one of the other things that makes EU confidential different is that we dare to tackle controversial and negative subjects. We don't think we're anti-EU just because we talk about strange things that happen in the EU. And this isn't even an EU thing. I was just looking across the world, whether it was Europe, its neighbourhood, globally this week, and I just thought, wow, things are so, so out of control to what I've known them. And the thing that jumped into my mind was this family of suicide bombers in Indonesia. And for anyone who hasn't followed this story, it got some attention, but it wasn't exactly, you know, first story on the news for days or anything like that. Six members of one family went out and blew up churches in Indonesia. And that included the mother and her two daughters going to a set of one set of churches and the father and the two sons going to another set of churches. And these were like actual children people at school, not, you know, 40-year-old children. And I, just, I was like, I, I, I don't know where we start to unpack our world when stuff like that is going on. Yeah, I think it was so shocking to hear about that family in Indonesia. Can you imagine what the, the thinking behind a parent who would strap bombs to their children and send them off to die like that? You just can't, you can't imagine it. But I think that it's always important to remember that these things aren't completely removed from our ideology and our values, which are completely different. And it's important for Europe to keep pushing them, I think. And yeah, to realise that we're not the only people experiencing terrorism. Uh, I do think there's sometimes this narrative and I, around the Paris attacks, for example, everybody was always saying, but there are, are bombings in Beirut, there are bombings in wherever. Uh, why aren't we always looking at that? I think we're getting desensitized to it now, and this was just such a shocking story, but we need to remember that we're not the only ones who are affected by extremism. So yeah, I thought it was just a, a really sad thing to hear about. It's not the first time 
couple of years ago, um, there was a video that uh, was all over the media as well, where there was a dad in, in Syria uh, preparing his daughter to go. She was like, I think, five years old, uh, to go and blow up herself and uh, saying goodbye to her. This doesn't represent any ideology or any country or any religion or any human value. This is, uh, I believe, sick people. They have been unfortunately psychologically and mentally and emotionally manipulated. We don't know the circumstances they are living in in order to perform that. I'm sure there's no mom and no dad and there's no religion whatsoever calls to kill yourself and, and let the children kill themselves and, and, and kill innocent people. In Islam, it's said that if you kill one soul as if you have killed the whole humankind. So this does not represent any sort of, uh, of a religion again. It's sad, but yet again, there's a lot of work for all of us, not only governments and not only EU, the civil society, the religious leaders, whether the Christian or the Jewish or the Muslims or name it, we have a lot of responsibility in doing awareness and giving alternative conversations and dialogue to these people. So we don't give a space for the radicalized and I think as well, like what we were talking about earlier, what the EU does in relation to development, education, I think, is really key. And a lot of countries that are poor, they get really a religious education. And I, I just think that if you can diversify that, even though that shouldn't be the main point of development spending, it will help to stop this kind of radicalization in general in all societies. And I, I absolutely agree with Lena. Radicalization is not just the purview of Islamic societies. We have it in white societies as well. And a lot of it is linked to poverty. It's linked to no other opportunities in your life and also from where you get your information. So I think, again, it's it just really a strong reminder that the more we invest in education, the better our societies, the more secure they will be. And the more we invest in dialogue, like this podcast, not saying the podcast solves anything, but... We value all of you who listen to it. We think you're part of this discussion as well. We love talking to each other. And we're going to keep doing it because, if nothing else, it's an illustration of good things coming out of people being willing to uh, learn from each other and have a conversation. Absolutely. On that note, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, you can rate, review, and subscribe to EU Confidential on any of the platforms that you found us, you can also go to politico.eu forward slash registration, tick the box for EU Confidential, and then you will get a newsletter, this podcast in your inbox every single week, and invitations to any podcast-related events. A big thanks going out to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for making this episode of EU Confidential possible. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.